Please turn with me, if you will, to uh, Psalm 126. Psalms 126. When I started college, my first year there, a part of my life every morning was getting up and spending time with the Lord in the Word and prayer. But let me tell you, as I say that, because I don't want you to draw any wrong conclusions. I didn't do that because I was spiritual as such. I didn't do it because somebody told me this is what you ought to do. I didn't do it because anybody held me accountable. I've never been held accountable for that kind of thing. The only reason I did it was because, as a young kid in Africa, I used to wake up early in the morning and I'd walk out there and see the light coming from a room and we didn't have electricity, but I'd walk in to look, peek through the door and see a kerosene lamp lit. And I'd see my father in there either sitting at his desk reading his Thompson Chain Reference Bible or on his knees in prayer. The only reason I began reading and praying at that age was not because my mother left some little pamphlet by my bedside in high school trying to tell me it was the right thing to do, but because of the example of a father who did it. And that is the only reason. It has been a pattern of my life over these years just to imitate him. Beyond that, though, the tough part was just doing what he did was what did he do? I knew what he did, but how to do it, I didn't know. And I just want to share that in his introduction because part of what I even looked for all of my years in college and into seminary was now I know what to do because I've seen it done. How do I do it? And my father drowned before I ever had a chance to discuss it with him. Somebody told me that Billy Graham read in the Psalms and Proverbs every day, and that sounded good to me, so I started doing that, and I've done that now for over 30 years. But it took me 10 years to figure out what else to add to that. I remember Dr. Woodbridge coming to town and saying at the college there that we might try doing what he did, and he would read through a book of the Bible every day for a month, and then he would go to another book. And so I tried that for a while, and it was all right, and I still do that in preparation for working on a book or as assignment I give to students who are going to study a book with me. That's one of the things they must do. But that didn't do what I wanted because I wanted something to cover the whole Bible. And then my final year in seminary, I talked to one of the professors, a Dr. Feinberg, who used to read through the Bible three to five times a year. And I said, what do you do? And so he told me, and I don't do it three to five times a year, but the pattern of reading an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, became something that now has been a part of my life for the last 20-some years. Added to that, just in the last few months, I was reading through Psalm 111, and I said, I can't wait that long to get back here again. So now, what I do in the morning, I start out with Psalm 111, I mean, 119, basically to get myself attuned to the Word of God, And then after 119, I moved to another psalm, and that is to get myself an attitude of praise to God. And I suggest to you, if an apple a day can keep the doctor away, a psalm a day can keep depression away. It is exciting what you find in there. And then I moved to a proverb, and um, you had Dr. Kirk here a while back, and he does the same thing. And part of the thing on the proverbs is, if you miss a day, don't worry, just take the date it is and read that proverb. And then moving from there to an Old and New Testament passage. Exciting just yesterday, just as a part of this, you know, part of as you begin to read, one of the things that happens as you start reading, it sort of it leads into prayer because you start to read and you read something that just caused you to stop for a while and to either confess sin or to in some way praise God for what he's done. Yesterday was exciting because 
I, as you, go through times of difficulty and trial where you're holding on to God for things. And as I read the psalm yesterday, it was exciting because the first stanza, it says that everybody, people all over the world, go to God in prayer. The second stanza said that God answers prayer according to his righteousness. And then the third stanza explained how God does this. And the one line that stood out for me, the stream of God is full of water. You know what is great? God's supply from which he provides for me never, never, never runs out. That was my line for yesterday. It was a thing that's going to hold me over for a long time. The stream of God is full of water. Anyhow, it was in the process, okay, of reading through the Psalms a while back that I came to Psalm 126. And when I read it, my recollection of Psalm 126 is when I was in college in an evangelism class memorizing the verse in this passage that says, He that goeth forth weeping, pairing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I read the verse and I said to myself, you know, this passage isn't dealing with evangelism, although certainly can be applied to evangelism. So therefore, I started to look at this passage and I became so excited. So then when I was asked to speak here and asked, suggest I might speak on a psalm, I decided that this would be the psalm. Look at the passage with me because it is exciting how it begins and it tells us exact context in which it took place. It says in verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. The context here, as you recall, with Israel, they have gone into captivity and the reason they did was because God brought them to the land of Canaan. Great blessing there from God as they came into the land, but yet God gave to them a requirement that every seventh year they were let the land lie fallow. Now, what they did is exactly what we do, and you're tempted to do exactly the same thing they did. You look at that and rationalize and say there is no way. You see, if we let the land lie fallow this year, we won't have enough for our family, and therefore somehow God says it, but there's no way we can do it because it doesn't work in this day and age. Listen to me, God's word always works. Rationalizing doesn't get it done. And they thought they got away with it for 490 years, but God says, no, you didn't. And after that period of time, God says, because you did not keep my commandment, I'm sending you captivity, and for every year you did not let the land lie fallow, I will make the land lie fallow, so for 70 years you will be in captivity. They are now returning from that because God has kept his promise, and they come back from captivity now. And you notice what happens. He says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. We thought maybe we were in a dream and uh, we weren't sure that God was really doing what was happening. And you're almost afraid someone will pinch you and you wake up and they said, but it was true. And notice then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. What a contrast is it. If you go over me just a few pages to Psalm 137. You will read what happens there. He says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. What a contrast. And what happened upon the willows, verse 2, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For our captors demand of us songs and our tormentors mercy, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. It is fun to listen to Jewish people sing. Somehow we think as we sing these songs with the guitars and stuff, it's a new thing. It's not a new thing. 
They've been doing it for years, and some years ago I was asked to do a conference for some people who, Jewish people who had come to know Christ, and it was exciting to see their exuberance in singing. And as even back then these Israelitish people were singing, the captors said, we love to hear them sing, and so they asked them to sing. But notice what happened when they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They said, verse 4, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What a contrast now in Psalm 126. You see, they are leaving the foreign land, and my, their attitude is different. No longer do they have to be coached into singing. Their mouth is filled with laughter and their tongue with joyful shouting. By the way, sometimes when we experience things from God, we are so restrained. Um, I've often said that I get excited doing everything I do. Uh, I can't even go to a ball game without getting involved and getting excited. I will pick a team. If I have no favorite, I'll find one just because I want to get involved. Often when it comes to worship, though, worship is the one place if you're sitting in the pew, sometimes you don't get as involved as you would anywhere else. And somehow we need to show our excitement about the things of God. And you notice what happened. They were so excited. They could not contain themselves. Their mouth was filled with laughter, their tongue with joyful shouting. And it's interesting because when God blesses you this way and you get excited and you want to shout and you want to sing, what is exciting is when other people, not even believers, but unbelievers, begin to realize how great God is. Notice, then they said among the nations, even the neighbors, even the ungodly people said the Lord has done great things for them. That's exciting, isn't it? When God blesses your life and other people see it. And especially when God blesses your life and other non-Christian people see it and they're excited about what God is doing. But now notice, the Lord has done great things for us and certainly we are very, very, very glad. You know, this is exciting as you read this because the first three verses filled with rejoicing and praise to God. But all of a sudden, verse 4, we come to prayer. And the prayer seems so out of place in a sense in the context of this passage because... The very first statement is, God, restore our captivity. I thought they had just come back from captivity. What is this, restore our captivity? You see what happened, and go with me for a while as you think in your mind's eye with what happened to those people. They went into captivity, and you see, you remember that uh, when God brought them to the land, everybody had their family piece of property. And you didn't lose that piece of property. You could sell it to somebody else, but the year of Jubilee, it came back to you anyhow. So the family property was always family property. See, your grandmother and grandfather's house, it would always be something you could go back to. I've been up in Canada recently, and my grandmother's house is sold, and they've actually uh, taken the whole farm apart, and they've put all these houses up in there. You see, it's no longer our property. But see, in their day, it was different because you always got it back again, and it was always family land. And so in captivity, the grandfathers would sit with the grandkids and tell them, you should see this house, the homestead that we have. You should see, I mean, there's a place back there where your father used to climb the trees, and, and you know, they used to play in the stream back there, and the kids were all excited, let's go back and see this that grandpa told us about. And so the captivity is over with. They start back and they're all excited and they come back to this piece of property. Now let me show you the contrast, if you will. When they came to Canaan the first time, you remember what happened? All the way through the wilderness, God gave them manna to eat every single day. They went out there and the manna was on the ground. They picked it up. They ate it. 
And when they came to the land, as soon as they came to the land, the manna stopped. Why? Because there was plenty of corn and plenty of grain and plenty of fruit and plenty of everything. Why? Because the heathen that were there before they came had already planted and produced all of these crops, and they just came in and took over. And so God could stop the manna because there was plenty of food. But now they come back. And my friend, they came back to this land and nobody has tilled the soil. Nobody has kept the house up. Nobody has done anything with this for 50 to 70 years. And they came back there and all of a sudden they got depressed. And it's not like us today. We can go down to the store to buy something. You can go down to the store and buy it then. I think it was even worse than it was for us in Africa because there we had market day every fifth day. But there, I'm not even sure they had that kind of thing. And so if you didn't raise it yourself, you didn't have it. And they came back there and you see there was no food. And so here they are crying out to God because, especially as a father who was there and he had his kids and wife to take care of, he cried out to God because he says, God, he says, we have no food. And you know what's happened. You can't go to the store and buy it, so you're going to have to plant it. You're going to have to wait through all of that period of time while all of this is growing so that you can eat it. And he cries out to God and he says, God, please restore our captivity like the streams in the Negev. The Negev. You watched the recent desert storm and uh, we saw all that happened there. And you saw the pictures there of the desert region. It was somewhat of the same area that you find that's described here. During the dry season, if any of you have ever lived in that part of the world, what happens is there is no rain. I mean, not even a little bit of rain. And for months you go without anything, any moisture coming whatsoever. And we used to get to the place where you'd apportion it. You had a bucket a day to do everything. That was enough to wash your face in and to flush the toilet with. And whatever else you wanted to do for the day, you had a bucket of water. Uh, ladies used to leave, some of the African ladies used to leave early in the morning during the dry season with pots on their head to walk to get water and they wouldn't even get back in time to be at church on time at 11 o'clock. That's how far they had to go to find water. I remember a missionary invited to come to a baptismal service during the dry season. And they said, we don't have any water in the river. So therefore, we're going to baptize him in a drum, if you don't mind. And you'll push the people down inside the drum. So he showed up there and he says, I'd be glad to do that. When he got there, there were two drums side by side. And he says, what's this for? And they said, we want to do it the right way. So you'll stand inside of one drum and push them down inside the other. But that's what you do in dry season. There is no water. There is nothing. You look at the places where rivers were and there is no river. There's a dry place in the desert where you see the riverbed. But there is absolutely nothing. And then you see the great hope of the believer, as he says in this passage, he says, God, restore our captivity just like the streams in the Negev. What would happen? The rainy season would come. And as you read in the Bible, there are early rains and latter rains. In Africa, we had the early rains would come, and they're different than the latter rains. Early rains are very, very, very harsh rains, very, very hard rains. The latter rains is when the crop is up and just about to be harvested. There's a very nice misty rain that comes and just prepares it for harvesting. And the last thing you want is a heavy rain right before harvest. And I recall those early rains. We'd be out playing tennis. 
And we'd play as long as we could, and we knew it was coming, but we didn't know when. And then all of a sudden, the wind would start to blow. And it would blow hard, and you play to the last moment, then you get on your motorbikes and head for home. And the very first thing we do, we lived right on a cliff that looked out for some 30 miles, and you could see the storm coming. And we took sheets and towels, every one we had in the house, and we put them in all the louvered windows because it blew so hard, and the rain came so hard, it come right in the house. And that's what he's talking about here. The early rains, it would come, and they would drench the ground, and all of a sudden, what was nothing more than a dry place in the desert, all of a sudden, there was a stream and a river flowing down. And you understand that from recent rains, I think, right? And that's what it was. And what he says to them, God, please restore our captivity just like the streams in the Negev. I praise God that in those times when it's dry for us and when somehow we look out and we say, God, it's difficult for us, we cry out to God with that sense of hope and we know that God will restore our captivity just like the streams in the desert. But then, how does he do it? And it's interesting, now we come to verses 5 and 6, which are fascinating verses because there are three, two, three themes that come in these two verses and are repeated twice. Those who sow in tears shall reap. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me suggest three things that come in here and they're so crucial to us. We want God to restore our captivity. We want God to bless. We want God to provide for us. But I suggest to you there are three things in this passage absolutely essential if, in fact, God's going to do so. First of all, and I, there are three W's here, very simple to do. We must notice those who sow in verse 5 and those who carry their bag of seed in verse 6. You want God to bless? I want to tell you the very first thing there must be, there must be work. <laughs> the, the farmer comes back with his family and he looks at this field that has not been cared for for 50 years. He sees the weeds. He knows that he needs a harvest. He knows he can't just go borrow money to buy the crop, so he's got to raise his own. And the only way he can do it, if I want a crop to feed my family, there's nothing else I can do but go out and work the soil, plant the seed, keep the weeds out, make sure it's watered, and then harvest it. And if I don't work, there will be no results. Now, I want to deal with this just for a while, but, you know, as we deal with this in the context of evangelism, it certainly applies to that because it's true. You know, we could sit in here from now until the Lord comes back, whenever that may be, and we could have prayer meetings in this gym every single day from now till he comes back, praying for all of the people around us that they'll come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And as, as effective as prayers are and as great as God's work is, let me tell you what God is committed to do. God wouldn't be bringing people to Christ unless we get out and do what? If you don't work the soil, if you don't share the word, if you don't deal with people, there is not going to be a harvest. The very first thing there must be for a harvest, there must be people who are willing to work. Now, I take you to Proverbs for a while. Go there with me just for a bit, and we will be back here just in a moment. Proverbs chapter 6. Important reminder for all of us. Chapter 6, verse 6. Notice what he says in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. 
Observe her ways and be wise. Now, I want you to look at this carefully with me. Go look at the ants, he says, for a while. They have no chief. They have no officer. They have no ruler. And in spite of that, they prepare their food in the summer and they gather their provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rouse from the sleep? A little sleep? A little slumber? A little folding of the hands to rest? And your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Just pause for a moment with me. We hear so much about accountability these days. But I just want a word of, of caution in there, okay? The ant has nobody it has to answer to. No officer, no chief, no ruler. I think of that with people going out into ministry or people going to the mission field. My friend, you can go out in the pastorate in many cases. You can go to the mission field and nobody is watching what you do. They may come to church on Sunday and be able to tell by the sermons they listen to what you do during the week, but many of them don't keep track of what you do. And the only way that you will ever do it is if you understand your own need to be accountable to God. But see, the ant doesn't have anybody holding it accountable. And yet, what does it do? It still prepares its food. It still gathers its provision. And I tell you, it doesn't lay around, but it gets the job done. Go with me quickly, if you will, to chapter 20. Chapter 20 and verse 4. We need to work. There's no way we'll have a harvest unless we get out and work. There's no way we'll make it in school unless we work. The sluggard, verse 4, does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has absolutely nothing. No work, there is no food. Chapter 21 and verse 5. Dream all you want to, but the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. But everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. You need to plan. You need to work. Go with me to one of my favorite passages, chapter 26. Notice what happens, verse 13, the sluggard says. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the open square. My friend, listen to me carefully. There is no lion. This passage, what he's talking about, the sluggard is lying in bed. And he says, oh, my, there's a lion out there. I don't dare get up. It's going to eat me. There is no lion. You, you know what the lion is. You've seen it. I wake up every morning. There's a lion that couches by my bed. Every morning is there. The colder it is, the bigger the lion is. Right? And you, you, you say there's a lion there and you crawl back under your covers and decide I've got to sleep for another hour or so at least. And then you get ready to go run in the morning. You walk to that front door and friend, the rain is out there and you say to yourself, there is no way. The lion is big at the door and says, you don't want to get out and run this morning. And you do it anyhow and you get to the first mile. There's a lion there that says it's about time to turn around and go back again, right? My friend, I don't know what your lions are, I just know where mine are. But you see what happens, this man sees a lion and he says, there's a lion out there somewhere, there's no way I'm getting out of bed this morning, so what does he do? As the door, verse, verse, verse 14, turns on his hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. In fact, the matter is, you see, he buries his hand in the dish, he's worried of bringing it to his own mouth. 
Go with me if you will. Interesting anyhow. Chapter 27, verse 18. He who tends the fig tree will eat his fruit, and he who cares for his master will be honored. On and on. We can go through Proverbs, all right? What do we see? My friend, for this farmer, for you, for me, in the plan of God, if you don't work, my friend, there is no harvest. You can't get by without working. There must be work. And it's amazing, too, and we'll talk about this in a moment, because, you know, it's interesting, the process that this takes. This farmer can start to work today, but he is not going to see a crop for months and months and months. And so many times in school, we want to come to God and we say to God when it comes the morning of an exam, God, help me, boy. If, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We like that verse. Anything you see to get by, listen to me carefully. I like math and I've worked with a lot of languages, but the same thing is true for both of them. You can't cram at the last minute to make it. If you don't do the work here, there won't be the results there. It's just how it goes. And I want to tell you something. Pray as hard as you will. God doesn't change the process. He hasn't changed the process. He won't change the process. Can you imagine this farmer going to God and say, God, now you've got to understand, we've been in captivity for 50 years. How about I plant and you give me a harvest in a month? Do you think it's going to happen? question is, could God do that? And the answer is what? Yes. Will God do that? The answer is, likely not. In fact, of the matter is, he won't do that. Why? God established it this way. And my friend, if you don't work, you don't bring in a harvest. Let me take you to the next one, though, if you will. Notice something else in both of these verses. Maybe a tough one, but I, I remind you of this and want you to come back to this over the years and many years from now you will come back to it. Maybe in a sense, in a greater sense than even today. Those who sow in tears, and then in verse 6, he who goes to and fro weeping. It is interesting because you look in both of these verses, there's working in both of these verses, there's also weeping in both of these verses. The Hebrew here is very emphatic. As one has said, as assuredly as you weep, so assuredly will you reap. And even as you have in this passage, you will doubtless come again, I think is how the authorized version says it, because that's emphatic, but so is the other. If you certainly weep, you will certainly reap. Now, think with me of this farmer for a while, for a moment, and then I will come back to your life and mine. This farmer comes back with his family, and he's an Israelitish farmer. His background is not a lot different than the background of your father or my father. In the sense that this Israelitish farmer is a man who is given to being a... He's a tough man of the soil because that's how he's had to be. That's how he was raised. That's how he's raised his family. And the thing of it is, his wife has never probably ever seen him cry. His kids have certainly never seen him cry. And he comes to the table at night and they sit down to eat. And as they gather around the table and begin to eat, and he looks at the amount of food his kids have to eat, there isn't enough for them to eat. Absolutely not. 
And so he looks at the table and he takes some of his own without them realizing it. And he puts it on their plate so they'll have more to eat. He's the one that needs it, but he makes sure that they have enough. The kids eat their food and then not understanding what the father is going through, they say to the mother, isn't there anything else? And she says no, and she sort of looks at her husband as she says that. And inside of himself, he hurts and hurts. You see, he can't give himself to break down, and he's not going to there. I remember a fellow missionary that I love so much. Big fellow. He had a deep voice, so deep his bass voice was, he couldn't even get high enough to sing the bass notes in the songbook, so they had to lower it for him. Fun to listen to him sing, but he was a real man. He was a German. I would guess that possibly and probably his wife hardly ever, if ever, saw him cry, and I don't believe his children ever did. I saw him shed tears only once as he stood before an audience and talked about the Muslim people in Africa dying without Christ. And the only time I ever saw this German man weep. I think of my own father, Scottish. And my father wasn't given to crying either. The day he was going back to the mission field, and I was a little older at that time, and it was a time when now four of us would stay home and only one would go back with the family. It was a time when the family would be broken finally and never really united again, and they knew that. And I walked over to the window of that Chevy with my father sitting inside, and I was just younger than some of you, and I put my hand on his shoulder. Never forget. Only time my whole life I ever saw my father cry. Tears came down his face and he couldn't even bear it. He stepped in the gas and left me there. Because, you see, it wasn't in him to cry. It wasn't in this German man to cry. It wasn't in this Israelitish father to cry. But you know what he did? He went out in the field the next day to till the soil again and to prepare the crop. And as he went out there far away from the house where his wife couldn't see him and the kids couldn't see him, and even that far away from the house, he turned his face to make sure nobody saw. And there alone before God and himself, he cried and he allowed those tears to roll down that very dark, sun-hardened cheek. And they dripped off of his chin and they were caught up in all the sweat on his shirt. And he allowed himself the privilege of crying before God. Listen to me carefully in life. It's a part of what God has planned. You see, we want the results over here, but I'll tell you what there must be. There must be working, first of all, and secondly, I'll tell you, there will be weeping. It will come. And I'll tell you, if you haven't been there, you will be there. I recall the day driving on a freeway right in this area, going off of one freeway onto another. And because of something in my life at that time, I cried as I have never, ever in my life. But you see, my wife was not there. My kids were not there. Only God and I were there. And you see, I allowed myself the luxury of weeping. My friend, if you haven't wept, you will weep. 
And let me tell you something of the concern when you apply this to evangelism. And it's true, you see, because as this verse is used for evangelism, if you go forth weeping, bearing precious seed, you shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bring your sheaves with you. And some of us, when we talk about the lost, we don't even care enough to weep over the lost. Even our Savior in front of people wept. And as he stood over Jerusalem twice, we have it recorded, Jesus stood and looked at the city and Jesus wept. My friend, one of the reasons why many of us do not see people coming to Christ, we don't care enough not only to work, but also to weep. And as assuredly as we work and as assuredly as we weep, so also shall we reap. And so he says in this passage, there will be working, there will be weeping. Let me just show you something else quickly. There will be waiting. Waiting in two ways. Waiting on God in prayer. You know, one of the major issues is that need of prayer, and we all know that. And so we have the prayer in verse 4 where he says, restore our captivity. And so he cries out to God in that passage, God, please do this. And, you know, as we work and as we weep, we must also be waiting on God in prayer. And it is crucial that we do all three of these, not one, not two, but all three. We must work, work as hard as we can work. We must weep as our heart is burdened to weep, but we must also wait on God in prayer. Might I suggest to you one other way of waiting, though, as we talk about this, we must wait for God in patience. Go with me, if you will, as you look at this passage, just notice what happens here. It says, he who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, I ask you again, as this man works and he does, he works hard. As he weeps and he does, he weeps often by himself. And as he waits on God in prayer, so he must wait for God in patience. Because when I plant the crop here... I have to wait for the early rain to come to prepare the soil. I have to wait for the latter rain to come to prepare the harvest. I have to depend upon God for all that takes place. And I have to wait months for it to happen. You know, so often when we come to God and we say, God, you know, I want to turn my life over to you. I want to commit my life to you. Somehow we in America want instant responses and God doesn't give those kinds of things. We want people discipled in a little while. I hear people talk about discipling somebody in three months. My friend, you don't disciple somebody in three months. It takes a long time. You see, it's a process. We want it in a hurry. Um, God is destined to be this way. My daughter, the oldest one, who is married in out in Riverside, just had her second child. And she got pregnant. And, you know, you can imagine, you know, this pregnancy may be a little, it was tough at the beginning. I remember that because I had meetings and they went with us and she was having some difficult times. And I can envision she and her husband, who are godly kids, and they go to God and they say, God, you know, we love you a lot. We really appreciate all you do for us and want to ask you a favor. Is there a possibility likely you would give us a full-term baby inside of three months? Now, Now, hold it a minute, okay? The question is, could God do that? Could he? Absolutely. Is there a chance that God will do that? Not a chance. Not a chance. 
You see, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to bear Jesus for nine months because what? That is how God planned for it to be. And you see, you don't shortchange the process of God because God says you'll work and you'll weep, but you're also going to have to wait. Turn with me quickly, if you will, to Haggai. And I want you just to see the same process. It was the same period of time. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, third last book in the Old Testament. NASB page, 1315. There we are now. Just quickly, what happens? These people are not living like they should, and they've got problems. Same problems we have in that passage in Psalm 126. Haggai chapter 1, you've sown much. Oh, they sowed a lot. You've harvested little. And then you go out and eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. See, this is a father who works and works and works, and there's never enough. My friend, this is a lot of fathers and mothers in this country today. And those who earn, they earn wages to put in a purse with holes, verse 6. God says, I want to tell you, go consider your ways. Commit your life to me first. And God says this. And he says, go to the mountain, verse 8. Bring wood, rebuild my temple that I may be pleased with and glorified. So what did they do? They said, Lord, we'll do it. Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of horse that God. And notice the date. It was the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now notice what happens. Go with me to the next chapter. It is the 24th day, verse 10, of the ninth month, exactly three months later. They committed their life to God. They gave him their lives. And now look at what God says on that day. Verse 18. God says, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider. Now, he says, it's been three months since you committed your life to me. Verse 19. Is the seed in the barn? And the answer is no. Even look at the vine tree, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree. Has it borne fruit? And the answer is no. Hold it. I thought I committed my life to you three months ago. It's three months later, God, and you haven't done anything. The barn is empty. The trees are empty. There is absolutely nothing. And in fact, I don't even see the possibility. But notice what God says. God says, and I go back to the first line of verse 18, the last line of verse 19. God says, consider from this day onward. Yet from this day on, the last line of verse 19, I will bless you. You know, just to say to you, if you commit your life to God and say, God, this is a commitment I make. I realize the work you've called me to do, whether it's the work here at school, or whether it's a work in local ministry, or whether it's a work God's going to call you to in the future. My friend, you're going to work awfully hard, and there are going to be those days when it's so difficult you are going to weep. And you're going to wait on God in prayer, but God is going to make you wait for Him in patience. And my friend, it may take a long time. And it may take months and even years before you see the answer you're looking for. But let me say to you, if you commit your life to Jesus Christ fully and give your life to Him, if you work in those things that He has called you to do as you should work hard, 
If you weep as you should as those times come where there's hurt and pain, if you wait on God in prayer and if you wait on God in patience, the guarantee, my friend, is that from this day on, God will bless you. But my friend, you're going to have to what? We're going to have to what? We're going to have to work. We're going to have to weep. And we're going to have to wait. But as assuredly as we go forth weeping, bearing precious seed, we shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing our sheaves with us. And praise God, we can cry out to Him. And many of you are there, maybe in your own personal lives. Your life seems as dry as a desert. And sometimes you cry out to God and ask Him to meet your need. Let me tell you the hope you have today. You have a hope of being able to cry out to God and say, God, restore Restore my captivity just like the streams in the desert. God, I need you to pour water on my soul. I need you to pour water in my life. I need you to restore me and to strengthen me and to encourage me. And my friend, God will do it. But we must work and we must weep and we must wait. Let's pray. Again, our Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for your promises to us. We're grateful to you for a psalm like this that shows us the heart of a man who was burdened, sensing the praise he had to you for all you had done, and yet crying out to you in prayer in the midst of his distress and knowing that you would answer. We trust you that you will answer our needs today, and as we work hard, even our work here, even at times when it becomes difficult to the point even of tears, But as we wait upon you, we know that you're going to respond to us, and we thank you for it. Be pleased to go with each one of us in a way that will manifest your strength and power in our lives even today, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.